Hello everyone, it's so lovely to be back here. Um, I'm not sure whether you'll be able to hear that the bells are ringing out, my church tower bells um, are ringing out. It is midnight here um, in Spain. I don't know what time it is with you, but uh, welcome um, wherever you are and however you're joining me, whether it's on um, Facebook or um, YouTube, uh, welcome to you. Um, I'm so excited to be bringing you day two of Amberlynn, the woman behind the myths. Um, of course, I'm really excited to be talking about my very favorite historical character. It's always an honor to be talking about the lady who is behind me. Um, I don't know whether those of you who are on Facebook might need to visit streamyard.com forward slash Facebook uh, just to give permission for your name and profile pic to show when you comment. Um, sometimes you come up as Facebook user if you don't do that. So streamyard.com forward slash Facebook. Um, and what I'm going to say to you before I start exploring two very different views of Anne Boleyn, the topic being Anne Boleyn, pawn or predator. I keep wanting to, I kept wanting to write prawn or predator, uh, but pawn or predator. Um, before I start the actual talk, I'm just going to explain that I'm doing the talk first and then I'll be opening up for questions. So I'm going to have to ignore your comments and questions for now because I have to concentrate, I have to think. It's very late at night and I have to think. Um, so I can't concentrate on looking at your questions and answering them as well. And a good idea um, for you to do is to put a cue and then your question when it comes to the questions so that I can see it more easily. So I'm going to leave that ticker along the bottom there for you, but don't do it now. Don't bother asking questions at the moment because I won't see them until later. I will not be able to answer all of your questions. It is just impossible. We'd be here all night, all day, quite a few days but I'll do my very best to answer as many as possible. And do stay tuned to the end, right to the end, because I am actually going to be giving a very special announcement at the end. Right, let's get talking to Tudor. And Amberlynn is going to be keeping an eye on me and making sure that I get her story right. Porn and Predator. And that's porn, P-A-W-N, as in the chess piece. Um, those are two very opposing views of Anne Boleyn that are very, very prevalent on social media and also prevalent um, in fiction. Um, I'm going to actually hide that uh, ticker at the moment because it's going to annoy me. <laughs> um they're just, I see them all the time, especially on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Anne Boleyn and sometimes her sister, Mary Boleyn, they're seen as nothing but pawns that are used by their family, that are pushed mercilessly into the king's bed to advance the family at court. You know, these are girls without power, their family is pushing, their family are full of ambition. And yet, 
on the other hand, we have the opposing view of Anne as kind of playing a game, um, using her sexuality, her her magnetism, perhaps those eyes that we talked about yesterday, um, her, the power of her eyes to charm the King of England and to hold out on him. And I think you know what I mean by that until he offered her the crown um, just so that she and her family could be the highest in the land. So very, very opposing views both very prevalent. So you either have Anne Boleyn being completely powerless and just being at the mercy of her family, or on the other hand, you have Anne Boleyn being very, very powerful. She's either a goodie or a baddie, an innocent, or someone who is very, very sexual and knew how to use it. Um, but with those views, we end up with such a two-dimensional version of Anne. She's not a real character at all. She's not a real person at all. She's not fleshed out. Um, she's very two-dimensional and really is a fictional character. Now, let me look at these um, opposing views. Let me look, first of all, at the powerless Amberlynn, Amberlynn, that pawn, the chess piece, the idea that her overly ambitious family, her calculating father, Thomas Boleyn, uh, sorry, Lauren, if you're watching this, Lauren Mackay, I would uh, highly recommend her biography of Thomas, and she knows that I definitely agree with her over Thomas, but there is this idea that Thomas Boleyn is this overly ambitious and calculating man and that Thomas Howard, third Duke of Norfolk, Anne's uncle, is just as calculating, if not more. And that these men, they sacrifice first Mary Boleyn, and then they sacrifice Anne Boleyn. They go through their daughters one by one to advance themselves at court to get closer to the king. I don't know whether you saw the Boleyns, um, a scandalous family, and how well they sort of portrayed um, these people clamoring for places at court. They used the maze, the Hever Castle maze, um, and you saw these names getting closer and closer to the king. They did that really well. So these men are depicted as using the girls to rise in influence, favor, and wealth to get closer to the king. Now, I can see why there is this view. This view seeks to rehabilitate Anne, to save her from that home-wrecking image, um, the woman who made Henry VIII leave good Queen Catherine of Aragon, um, and instead to place the blame squarely on her family, at her family's feet, and in particular her father. Not a week goes by, and I'm serious when I say this. I'm not exaggerating. I would be exaggerating if I said not a day that goes by, but not a week goes by when I don't read a comment on social media somewhere about Thomas Boleyn and how awful he was and how he used his daughters 
and how he um, has to be held responsible for Anne's tragic end. It is certainly the Thomas Boleyn we see a lot in fiction, but is there actually any evidence to support that idea of the powerless Anne and the all-powerful father who really used Anne and Mary as pawns and he was a heartless pimp? Well, funnily enough, no, there actually isn't any evidence of that. But it is so prevalent because of the power of fiction, the power of TV, the power of movies. Now, although Mary Boleyn's romance um, with King Henry VIII, if we can call it a romance, makes for good fiction, and I'm thinking of the other Boleyn girl here, we don't actually know anything about their relationship. Um, all we know is that Mary and the king had sex at least once. Now, the only reason we know that is because Henry VIII sought a dispensation in 1527 to cover the impediment of affinity, to cover um, an impediment caused by him having had a sexual relationship with a very close, in the first degree, um, relation of the woman he wanted to marry. In this case, meaning um, Mary Boleyn and sister, he was. There were rumours, apparently, at one time that um, you know someone said that he'd slept with her mother as well. Um, he'd slept with her mother and her sister, and and he said never with the mother. It was just Mary he slept with, thankfully, um, and that. That relationship and then him wanting to marry Anne, it would have made his marriage to Anne incestuous. So um, a dispensation for to cover affinity was needed. So we know that there definitely was a sexual relationship, but that is all we know about it. Now, like her sister, Mary Boleyn was appointed to accompany Henry VIII's sister, Mary Tudor, um, on her travels, her journey to France to marry King Louis XII. Of course, we know it was to be a very short-lived marriage. And Mary was chosen to be one of her ladies to serve her there. That was in 1514. Um, Mary married Louis in October 1514. However, unlike Anne Boleyn, Mary Boleyn did not stay in France after Mary Tudor was widowed. Um, it's believed that she returned to England with Mary Tudor in 1515 after Mary Tudor had, of course, secretly married Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, and returned to the English court. Now, although many believe that Henry VIII um, was wooing Mary Boleyn in 1522 when he rode out um, at the Shrovetide uh, joust on the 2nd of March 1522 with a motto which said El Moncur and Nevera, which I've just slaughtered the French language there for you. Um, she has wounded my heart embroidered on the trappings of their of his horse. There is absolutely no evidence whatsoever, and I really mean that, 
that this was anything to do with Mary Boleyn. Um, it, there's no evidence that it was anything more than a chivalric theme that had been picked for the Shrovetide celebrations for any pageants and jousts. There was nothing to link it to Mary. It's sheer speculation. If it was aimed, um, if it did mean something, it could have been aimed at anyone. Um, there's nothing to suggest it was Mary. And by this time, Mary was married. She'd married one of Henry VIII's friends, um, a privy chamberer and an esquire of the body, um, William Carey, in February 1520 at um, a wedding that had been attended by the king. For me, I always ask, isn't it more likely that King Henry VIII slept with Mary Boleyn before her marriage to William Carey? Perhaps when Elizabeth, or Bessie Blunt, as she's um, commonly known, um, his mistress was pregnant and sort of out of action in 1519. And that then, after he'd finished with Mary, that he arranged a good marriage for her with one of his privy chambers, just as he did with Bessie Blunt. He arranged a good marriage for her after he'd finished with her. Bessie wasn't married when he slept with her, so I don't feel it's likely that Mary was married. But regardless of all that, whenever Mary's relationship with the king happened, I don't believe that Thomas Boleyn had anything to do with it whatsoever. Now, in 1498, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Thomas now. Um, Thomas Boleyn's career actually started, his royal career, his rise actually started in the reign of King Henry VII, the first Jude monarch father of Henry VIII. In 1498, as historian Lauren Mackay points out, Thomas had played host to King Henry VII at the Berlin home of Lickling Hall in Norfolk. So 1498, at this point, he didn't have any daughters uh, to, uh, to worry about or to pimp out to a king. And in 1503, he was chosen by King Henry VII to be a member of a party of men that was escorting Henry VII's eldest daughter, Margaret Tudor, to Scotland for her marriage to King James IV. Then in 1509, following Henry VII's death, Thomas was made a Knight of the Bath, a real honour at Henry VIII's coronation celebrations. At the same time, that same year, he was made Keeper of the Foreign Exchange in England and Keeper of the Exchange in Calais. Now, that was that was early in Henry VIII. Sorry, Henry VIII had only just come to the throne. And these offices, these were followed by many other important offices and lavish rewards. And Thomas was one of the men, I've told this story before, um, Henry VIII um, dressed up um, and his men, a group of men, as outlaws, as like Robin Hood and his merry, merry men. Um, and Thomas was one of these men that dressed up with Henry VIII. 
to surprise Queen Catherine of Aragon and her ladies in her chambers, and that was in 1510. Um, I'm not sure it surprised her very much, but Henry VIII really enjoyed disguising and you know doing these chivalric uh, traditions. And Thomas was an active jouster. He took part in the famous 1511 Westminster tournament, which was in celebration of the birth of a prince, Henry, Duke of Cornwall. Um, and then very sadly, in that same month, Thomas Boleyn acted as chief mourner and night bearer at the infant prince's funeral. Poor little Henry, Duke of Cornwall, only lived 52 days. Excuse me while I have a drink. And yes, I have got a minion's glass. I've just realised I've got a minion's glass. So looking at that, I mean, that is just um, a few examples from early in um, Henry VIII's reign. Thomas was clearly close to the king. He started his rise in Henry VII's reign, he just continued his rise into Henry VIII's reign. So he was close to the king. And this was when Mary and Anne were just little girls, um, not at court. So Thomas was on the rise. He had absolutely no need um, when Mary was a bit older to push Mary into the king's bed or to later push Anne into marrying the king or being his mistress. Thomas was a gifted man, a trusted and gifted diplomat, um, a linguist, someone who was very useful to Henry VIII. He carried out missions for the king, successful missions for the king, and the king was simply rewarding him for his good service. So there's no evidence that Thomas forced Mary to sleep with the king, but there's also actually no evidence um, regarding Thomas's feelings about Mary's relationship with the king, whether it was a very short sort of romance, whether it was just one night stand. We know nothing. Perhaps the fact that King Henry VIII had to step in and ask Thomas Boleyn to provide for Mary after she was widowed in 1528, suggests that there was some kind of breakdown in the relationship in the family, that the Boleyns had distanced themselves from Mary at some point, that her behaviour had affected their relationship. But that is just pure speculation. The family breakdown could have been caused by something else, or we just don't know the situation. However, when it comes to Anne Boleyn, we do have evidence regarding Thomas's feelings about her relationship with King Henry VIII. Regarding the king's desire to marry Anne, Eustace Chapuis, the imperial ambassador, wrote, I must add that the said Earl of Wiltshire has never declared himself up to this moment. On the contrary, he has hitherto as the Duke of Cornwall has frequently told me, try to dissuade the king rather than otherwise from the marriage. And Shepherd goes on to suggest that Anne's uncle, the Duke of Norfolk, denied any involvement in the matter too. Shepherd states, shortly after the Duke began to excuse himself 
and say that he had not been either the originator or promoter of the second marriage, but on the contrary had always been opposed to it and tried to dissuade the king therefrom. Had it not been for him and for the father of the lady who feigned to be attacked by frenzy to have the better means of opposing it, the marriage would have been secretly contracted a year ago. And for this opposition, the Duke observed, the lady had been exceedingly indignant with the one and the other. So that's making out there that actually Anne was pushing for the marriage and was getting very indignant about the fact that her father and Norfolk weren't supporting her. Now, it's impossible to know. I really wish we... Um, we knew more, we had more insight that we could go back and be a fly on the wall um, at Hever Castle um, when Anne was having discussions with her family. But it's impossible to know the advice that Thomas gave Anne when the king was wooing her or when the king did propose to her, um, proposing to her probably in late 1526, and whether Anne actually listened to this advice or whether she decided to go her own way. But Thomas Boleyn did go on to play his part in the great matter, Henry VIII's quest for an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon so that he could marry Anne. Thomas carried out embassies for the king. He supported the king and Anne, but it doesn't mean that he instigated their relationship or that he was even himself happy about it. He had to do his job as an ambassador. He had to do the king's bidding. And the Anne we see in the late 1520s and the early 1530s was a strong woman, not a pawn. Um, she was a woman that ambassadors shared news with. She was a woman who shared reformer William Tyndall's work with the king, something that actually helped him to eventually break with Rome. She was a woman who wasn't afraid of tearing strips off the king sometimes and giving him a good telling off when she thought that Catherine of Aragon had the upper hand. She was a strong woman. So I can't really see Anne Boleyn as a pawn. But is she the opposite? Was she actually a predator? In an article in the Sunday Times, um, I can't remember the year of the article, that historical novelist Philippa Gregory described um, the other Boleyn Girl movie, which of course was adapted from her novel of the same name, as the story of a woman using her sexuality to entrance and trap a man, followed by the brooding bitterness of his revenge. Hmm. Well, that really makes me want to bang my head on my desk. Um, I don't know quite what to make of that. A maid of honour, Anne Boleyn, caught, married Henry VIII's eye, he then wooed her with love letters. She rebuffed him and refused to be his mistress. But she's then cast as a woman who seduced and trapped him. Um, no, it's the same with Elizabeth Woodville, um, who, of course, married King Edward IV. 
um, both Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth Woodville regularly get accused um, on social media, in novels, on TV, of trapping these kings by using their feminine charms or by sleeping their way to the top, or in Anne's case, holding out on her lover um, until she reaches the top. Now, Philippa Gregory, I'm not being very fair here, um, she isn't the only one to depict Anne in this way. If you remember the Tudors series with uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Rhys Myers and Natalie Dormer, um, the Anne Boleyn of season one especially um, was really quite a seductress who kept Henry interested in her. And then we have a play, I think it was back in 2010, the Guardian newspaper wrote a review of Howard Brenton's play Anne Boleyn and said that Anne used her sexual stranglehold over Henry VIII to pursue the idea of religious reform and that she deployed her sexual power to become a conspirator for Christ. And the Daily Mail wrote of the play, using a shrewd political intelligence, this Anne Boleyn, Miranda Raisin, advances herself in court and Henry's heart by dedicating herself to the spirituality of William Tyndall's low church while simultaneously allowing a drooling still Catholic Henry to inch ever further up her leg over seven long years. So we have there Anne Boleyn using her sexuality um, for the good of uh, Protestantism uh, to further religious reform. Hmm. I hated reading both of those um, total sexualization of this historical character. And I see a lot of comments on social media about Anne Boleyn um, setting out to wreck Henry VIII's marriage. Um, she's this home wrecker. That's what that's the term that is quite often used, um, so that she could be queen. These kinds of comments, these people paint Anne as a predator. Her eyes are on the throne, the crown. She wants the crown and she'll do absolutely anything to get it. And she plays Henry VIII. She plays a game. Apparently, According to these people, she knew that by saying no to him, that he'd want her even more. It's all a ploy, a carefully executed plan. And her final tragic end, her execution, is apparently karma for her pride, ambition, and what she did to good Queen Catherine. According to these expert commenters on social media, Anne knew the risk and she deserved everything she got. That is the quality of some of the comments that I read a lot of the time. There is so much wrong with that. Um, it probably would take me all day to pick that apart, but I'll give you a few things that are wrong with that. Number one, Anne Boleyn was a maid of honour. 
uh, she was a servant. She was in Queen Catherine of Aragon's household. She was not in a position of power. She was a royal servant. Number two, there is no evidence to suggest that she did anything to make Henry VIII notice her. He simply spotted her in his wife's entourage the same way that he did later with Jane Seymour when Jane was serving Anne Boleyn and with Catherine Howard when she was serving Anne of Cleves and when Catherine Parr came to court and was serving um, Princess Mary. The, these women he would have seen regularly because they were in royal households. So he simply spotted Anne. Number three, we unfortunately do not have Anne's replies to Henry VIII's love letters, but we can get an idea of what Anne was saying from Henry's letters to her. It is clear from these letters that Henry VIII is the aggressor, not Anne, and that Anne is rebuffing his advances. Um, she retreats to Hever Castle. We know that because Henry writes to her at Hever. That's her family home. Not only does she go there to get away, but perhaps also to seek advice from her family about the situation. Number four, Anne said no. Henry wrote Anne at least 17 letters, love letters. And he sent her a number of gifts too, including a buck that he had killed. Very romantic. Of course, it was in those days. He didn't give up, despite the fact that Anne refused his advances and refused to be his mistress, even his official royal mistress. Anne actually appears to have been offended by his offers and suggestions and in his letters, Henry VIII is working very hard to win Anne over. As I've explained in videos I've done on YouTube um, and other talks and articles that I've done, Karen Lindsay, author of Divorced, Beheaded, Survived, a Feminist Reinterpretation of the Wives of Henry VIII, actually goes as far as viewing Henry VIII's pursuit of Anne as sexual harassment. Um, she sees Anne as a victim of sexual harassment. She points out that poet uh, Thomas Wyatt, the elder's poem, Whoso Lister Hunt, which is believed to be about Anne Boleyn, has Anne as a deer, as a hind, being pursued by two hunters. In this case, Wyatt and the king. So Anne is the deer and the two hunters are Wyatt and the king. Wyatt fails to catch the hind and the king wins. Wyatt writes, there is written her fair, her fair neck round about, noli metangere, for Caesar's I am. Caesar, Emperor Caesar, the king, has claimed the hind. Anne is Henry VIII's. She's a quarry hunted relentlessly by the king, ensnared by him, even labelled as his 
possession. She has a collar, this hind has a collar put round her neck and has, has it decorated with diamonds that say, for Caesar's I am. It is the king who is depicted as holding the power and not Anne. <clears throat> I think we're on number five now. There is absolutely no way that Anne, as a maid of honour, could have predicted that the king, the all-powerful king, um, that saying no to him would have led to him proposing marriage to her. How could she predict that? He surely would have been more likely to have moved on to an easier conquest. There were other maids of honour. There were other women at court. I suggested this to someone commenting on a YouTube video, I think. Um, and I was told this person was a man, but that's beside the point. But I was told that all men know that when a woman says no, she's just making them work a bit harder and that she really means yes or not yet. Sometimes I despair, I really do. I didn't know quite what to say to that comment. Um, perhaps, uh, yes, we've gone backwards uh, rather than forwards with, um, yes, women's rights. But yes, apparently Anne Boleyn knew that by saying no, that she would increase the king's ardour. He'd come after her and propose marriage to her. Number six, as for her knowing the risks of finally saying yes to King Henry VIII, and doing her utmost to marry him, how could she know the risks? How could she know that by saying yes to Henry VIII's proposal that that would lead to her execution? That is bizarre. Now, Anne did eventually say yes to the king, and Owen Emerson and I, um, we've written the book, um, The Blinds um, of Hever Castle, and in that, we write of our belief that she made this decision during the 12 days of Christmas that she spent at Heave Castle, um, Christmas 1526. The king had offered her marriage. Um, he'd obviously explained his view on his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, that it was invalid um, and why it was invalid. But it's impossible to know whether by this point Anne had fallen in love with the king or whether she'd simply been worn down by him, by all his wooing, all his letters, or whether she just felt that this man held her family's destiny in his hands. This man was God's anointed sovereign. He was all-powerful. I truly hope that she did love him and that she didn't feel trapped. Now, Anne responded to the king's proposal um, by giving him a special kind of trinket. It's described by the king himself as the fine diamond and the ship in which the solitary damsel is tossed about. Anne was letting the king know by this symbolism that she was prepared to brave the stormy waters ahead to voyage into the unknown with him 
and to remain steadfast. Of course, Anne could not have known just how stormy things would become and just how steadfast she'd have to be and for how long she'd have to remain steadfast. Now, Anne Boleyn may have been a woman at a time when women didn't hold much power, but she was no pawn. And I feel that it's incredibly unfair to depict the humanist Thomas Boleyn who was such a gifted man and if you read about him and I would really recommend Lauren's work on him, Lauren Mackay's work on him, if you read more about him you realise what an incredible man he was and how he gave his children such opportunities, so many opportunities and how heartbroken he must have been in 1536, um, following um, Anne's fall and the executions of Anne and George Boleyn. And I just, it's so unfair that a man like that is made out to be such a grasping, overly ambitious pimp, a man who would do anything to rise at court. And Anne, although she wasn't a pawn, she wasn't a sexual predator either. She is not someone who kept Henry VIII dangling for years in a bid to become queen. I think that was a mutual decision to um, not risk pregnancy. Um, Anne is not either of these things. She is not a two-dimensional character. She's a multifaceted character. She was a real person. And she was a fascinating one at that. So now I can step off my, uh, my soapbox. Sorry about preaching at you like that. Um, but now I am going to open up for questions. But do keep watching to the end. Even if you don't have a question, do keep watching to the end. So I'm going to have a very special announcement. So I'm just going to ask you to please put a cue in front of your question so that I can see it more easily as I look through. And I'm seeing that I've got quite a lot of comments. I think um, 174 comments. So I will really try my best. Um, to work my way through them. Let's have a look. Excuse me while they just load up. Okay. I'm sorry about my clicky mouse. So what have we got here? What is your opinion on the paternity of Catherine and Henry Carey, asks Catherine. Um, well, as I, as I said earlier, I, I believe that Mary Boleyn's relationship with the king is far more likely to have happened prior to her marriage. Um, I think the relationship happened sort of around about 1519 when Bessie Blunt was um, pregnant um, and that Henry VIII then married Mary, Mary Boleyn off to William Carey. So I believe that Catherine and Henry Carey were fathered by William Carey. Arguments are given 
um, about how William Carey was given so many grants and that, and that was to sort of pay him off for the use of his wife. Um, but no, if you look at other members of the King's Privy Chamber, if you look at the lists of grants and offices, these people, these, these men were were being rewarded all the time. King Henry VIII was incredibly, incredibly um, generous. So he had absolutely no need to, um, yeah, he, he, he wasn't paying off William, William Carey. Um, he was incredibly generous to those who served him um, loyally. So that is what I think about that. Uh, Chloe, how do you think Elizabeth I became aware of what had happened to her mother? How and when was it explained to her? I really don't know. Um, she would have been far too young um, to know immediately in 1536, but she definitely um, knew um, of her change in status uh, later. Um, but I would hope that someone close to her would have broken the news to her um, in a kind way. I, I really don't know, but it's just so, so awful. Um, let's have a look. Paris, did Jane Seymour testify against Anne? No, nobody testified against Anne Berlin. There were no witnesses um, at the trial. Um, so no, Jane Seymour was not involved in any way. She was kept away from the goings on. Um, she was brought to, brought, she was taken to, um, uh, a house outside of sort of, of London for a while to get her out of the way. And then she was brought back, uh, nearer the King, um, towards, um, well, near, um, Anne Boleyn's sort of end when the king felt sure enough about what was what was going on and that Anne was on her way out so no she was not involved um let's have a look bandit queen do you think Anne suffered from post-pregnancy depression when she behaved irrationally during 1534 and threatened Mary and Catherine we just don't know I think um, obviously there, you know, there are reports of you know Anne ranting and raving and wishing Spaniards to the bottom of the sea, and she, um, yeah, um, obviously she ranted and raved about them previously when they were being thorns in her side and um, getting in the way of her marriage, and then obviously there were times where she's um, ranting and raving after the marriage when they are being defiant. Henry VIII was treating them badly and she obviously, um, I can't condone it, but she was supporting his um, his stance, his harsh stance. Um, she could have been suffering from post-pregnancy depression. Um, it's, yeah, we just, I really wouldn't like to say I don't know enough about the, about the subject. I've never had postpartum depression. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't know. I'm sorry, I can't answer that one. Oh, thank you, Kieran. Um, Kieran's just made a donation. That's very, very kind of you. Uh, 
just because I love and really appreciate your knowledge. Thank you so much. That's lovely. Um, are there any physical descriptions of Anne's parents or siblings? Patients asks. No, unfortunately, there aren't, which is really, really frustrating. We don't have portraits of them. We don't have physical descriptions of them. There is um, a picture of Thomas Boleyn. He appears in a procession, um, an Order of the Garter, I think, procession. Um, but his um, it's, it's very unclear. Um, there is his brass memorial on his tomb which you can kind of see some features but you don't know his coloring you know his hair coloring his eye coloring um so no unfortunately no oh phil thank you recommending the heaver castle book yeah i've actually got it here this is right next to me the blinds of heaver castle um yes um Everlasting Starlight is asking me about uh, Jodie Turner-Smith. I answered that yesterday, actually. Um, yeah, they, they seem to go for the Predator image as well. Yeah, they did. I did not get on with the series. I thought Jodie Turner-Smith was actually the best act actor, actress in it. I thought the men were all very weak, and, I yeah, I really didn't get on with it. Um Amanda, didn't Holbein begin a portrait of Thomas Boleyn? We don't actually know. I, I haven't seen records of that. I'd like to, if you've got a source for that, I'd like to know. Um, Holbein certainly was close to the Boleyns. Um, Anne Boleyn certainly commissioned lots of work from him, acted as patron, so it's possible. Phil's asking me if there's going to be a Heaver Castle book too. The, yes, actually, we were working... The Berlins of Heaver Castle actually was never supposed to be written. It was supposed to be a small part of a bigger book on um, Heaver Castle and its social history, all of the families that have owned it throughout its entire history right up to the modern day. And we're still planning on doing that. The pandemic uh, stopped us working together. I couldn't get over um, to work with Owen on that archives were closed as well meaning we couldn't do the research we needed but the bit of the book that we had done was the Berlin's bit and of course the Berlin's we're both um yeah it's our specialism our favorite kind of topic that was the part of the book that we had done so we just carried on working on that and made a book out of it sorry if I'm missing questions by the way um oh thank you Kieran saying that um, I've asked for some of your books for Christmas as I really enjoyed your videos and lessons over lockdown. Thank you so much. Um, Susan, is there any documentation of Thomas Boleyn's reaction to the death of his daughter and son? No, we don't. Um, that obviously was a very personal, very private. Um, it seems that Thomas... Um, retired after he'd had to sit on the commission that judged four of the men um, who were charged with adultery with his um, with Amberlynn. Um, it appears that he retired to Heaver and he would have grieved with Elizabeth, his wife, there. He then, after grieving, it must have been absolutely awful to 
dust himself down and come back to court. His job was to serve the king. He had to carry on as families before him had done, as people like the Howards and the Staffords had done before. He had to prove himself to the king. He had to carry on. He was a royal servant. That's what he was. And he helped put down the pilgrimage of Grace Rebellion. He um, was at Prince Edward's christening in 1537, which fortunately would have been a good thing for him as well because he would have seen Elizabeth, his granddaughter, there. And um, he did things like, I think he lent his um, his garter badge or his order of the garter garter to Thomas Cromwell as well. And yeah, he had to get back, get back working and proving himself. Um, let's have a look. Leslie asking, why was it necessary for Anne to be executed in your opinion? Um, yes, Henry could have sent her into exile. He could have sent her to a nunnery. Um, if Henry ever truly loved her, how could he kill her? Well, we know there are plenty of stories uh, of people who murder their other halves and yet started out absolutely in love. Um, it's easy, I think, to go from love to hate over time. Um, I don't think Henry could afford to have Anne still alive when he was married to Jane Seymour. Um, he needed his marriage to Jane Seymour to be completely valid. Um, he didn't want any doubts over that. And he also didn't want Anne to be sort of a figurehead for any trouble at court, like Catherine of Aragon and Mary had been. Um, Anne may not have accepted the annulment. She might have been like Catherine. She might have uh, been a fighter and just been a millstone, a thorn in his side. So I think he had to get rid of her once and for all. Bandit Queen saying that perhaps I should do an expert article on Anne and her behaviour during 1534. Yeah, I think that's quite a good idea. I could actually look into um, her behaviour in 1534. She was pregnant in 1534 as well. Obviously, she just she'd had um, she'd had Elizabeth in September 1533, and then she's described as being pregnant in January 1534 and having a goodly belly, being heavily pregnant in July 1534. And then that disappears from the record. So whether it was a phantom pregnancy or whether she had a premature stillbirth, we don't know. So there was a lot going on in 1534. Um, but yes, it would be interesting to explore her behaviour in that, in, that, um, in that year. Ashley, out of the Amberlin portraits that have been carbon dated, do you know which has been shown to be the earliest? No, I the NPG one, which I know is definitely being carbon dated. One of the panels, I think I said yesterday, um, one of the boards used was dated to 1584. Well, a tree felled before 1584, so late in um, Queen Elizabeth I's reign. Um, no, I don't know of any other sort of dating of um, portraits. The the one behind me, which is a replica of the Heaver Rose portrait, the Heaver Rose portrait has not yet 
been tested and dated. I'd love for that to be. Um, let's have a look. What else do we have? Maddie, George Berlin. He's another of my favourite Tudor characters. I've actually written um, a biography on George with Claire Cherry. His role at court, he followed in his father's footsteps as um, a diplomat. So he did quite a lot of diplomatic embassies, um, especially at the court in France. Um, he also, he started off as a page. He worked his way up to being um, a cup bearer um, for Henry VIII. And it was actually while he was a cup bearer to Henry um, that in 1528 he ended up um, leaving court with Henry and Catherine as they escaped London because sweating sickness had affected London. Anne Boleyn went to Hever and was with her father. Uh, George went with uh, Henry and Catherine. George came down with sweating sickness there. I think they did they go to Waltham, and Anne came down with sweating sickness with her father at Hever. Um, just sorry, that was trivia. He had so many roles and offices. Um, have a look on the Amberlynn Files website um, and YouTube, actually. I can see you're on watching me on YouTube. Um, I've got the George Boleyn interviews, a playlist of George Boleyn interviews. Um, there is an interview with me and Claire Cherry where we talk about George Boleyn's career because he had so many offices um he was um warden of the of the sink ports um he had so so many he had an incredible rise like um like his father but yes a, a very um trusted diplomat he was very active at the reformation parliament which is the pie it's called the reformation parliament because it brought in all of the legislation which was to do with the break with Rome he was trusted with going to convocation in February 1531 um, to take the king's uh, plea to um, be recognized as supreme head of the church he was trust trusted with that and he was very young at the time um, and he was given sort of that job so many um, so many offices um, Yes, so that's George Boleyn for you. A fascinating character, just as fascinating as his sister. George says, what's your opinion on the reported wearing of yellow clothing by Anne and Henry after the news of Catherine of Aragon's death? We actually don't know. Sources differ as to who wore what. Um, I think it's is it Edward Hall. Now I'm going to get this completely wrong, but I have written an article about it. I think... Edward Hall might have both of them wearing yellow, but I think Chapuis only has Henry VIII wearing yellow. Henry VIII was happy. He was relieved when he heard news of Catherine's death. And he said that um, he, he rejoiced because it meant that he had no arguments with the emperor anymore. You know, Catherine had been an obstacle, really, uh, to um, diplomatic relations with Charles V, who was her nephew. Um, so he he was celebrating that thorn in his side had gone. 
he could renew relations with the empire and he certainly celebrated and we know there's a description of him taking uh, little Elizabeth in his arms and parading her to mass accompanied by uh, trumpets uh, horns um, so yes but we don't really know Anne's reaction um, and whether or not she wore yellow the sources differ um, Kitty, did Anne have beautiful handwriting? Do we have any surviving letters of hers? Yes, we do have surviving letters. We have um, a letter that she wrote um, when she was at Margaret of Austria's court to her father, Thomas Boleyn. So that's um, when she was young. Um, the handwriting on that is, is beautiful. Um, her handwriting gets even more beautiful as, as she grows up. There are letters, yes. Um, if you do Google search, you will you will find uh, copies of her letters. She wrote letters to Wolsey. There, there's quite a few uh, letters, and um, yeah, her signatures uh, beautiful as well. Um, you're going to make me get my arm out now, aren't you? Because I've actually got her. I've got a tattoo on my arm, of which is her handwriting. Sorry about this, people that don't like tattoos. But there you go. That's Anne's handwriting. That's from her book of hours. So, um, yes, so she did have beautiful handwriting, uh, Kitty. So there you go. You made me get undressed on on uh, live streaming. Um La petite Boulin, why do historians sometimes even repeat the same social climbing versions of Anne or claim the men push the girls? Can I be rude and say that it's laziness? Um, I don't know why these same tropes just, oh, just end up getting repeated um, because it is so easy now to, um, well, not easy, it's hard work, but you know, we, we've got, we can look at the records and we can make informed opinions from reading contemporary sources. And there's just no evidence to back up those outdated views. So I don't know what it is, whether it's laziness or perhaps not wanting to go against established opinions. Let's look at what the time is. It is getting late. I think I'm going to have to leave it at that, I'm afraid. I'm just scrolling up to see if I've missed. Oh, Cam says, are there any living descendants of Mary Boleyn? Yes, I, I actually answered that yesterday, so you probably missed that. Mary Boleyn had two children, Henry and Catherine, but they had large families, and I mean very, very large families, uh, 16 and 14 or something like that. And um, yes, um, our present queen is a descendant of one of her children, and Princess Diana was a descendant, um, is a descendant of another of her children. So Princess William and Harry have got Berlin blood twice over. And there are lots and lots of people that have got Mary Boleyn in their family tree. So it's very exciting. Um, okay, one more. 
Tina, the fact that Thomas Boleyn got Anne a place at the court of Margaret of Austria shows how much he thought of young Anne. That was not an easy thing to secure. Yes, he had, he built up a very good relationship with Margaret while he was at her court, while he was um, negotiating with her father, Maximilian, and um, and spending time with Margaret. They even had a wager. They were, they they actually had a bet on sort of how long the negotiations would take. I think Thomas won it. Um, and he established this good relationship, this friendship with Margaret of Austria. And I think he must have seen something in Anne. Perhaps Anne was very precocious. And I think he saw something in Anne. And he must have spoken of her to Margaret. And yes, what an opportunity for a girl of Anne's status to go and spend that time at Margaret of Austria's court. I mean, Thomas had to be then very apologetic when she was um, recalled uh, to go and serve Mary Tudor. I'm really sorry that I haven't done um, any more questions, but there are so many and I just can't answer all of them. But thank you to um, those of you who've left really kind comments and for the donations as well. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. So now I am going to announce um, something, a bit of news. I want to tell you about a very special event that I've organised for the spring um, to commemorate the 500th anniversary of Anne Boleyn's debut at the English court. She, her first recorded debut at the, at the English court is the um, at the Chateau Vert pageant on the 6th of March 1522. So with it being 2022, we've got the 500th anniversary of that. And I am putting on a special event called Anne Boleyn, the woman who changed England. Um, it's going to be online. So you don't have to worry about traveling in this uh, world of pandemics. Um, it's totally online. It's a seven-day online conference with eight Berlin experts. And with this online conference, you'll be able to find out um, why Anne Berlin was far from the social climber from fiction. Um, you know, fiction makes her out to be um, by delving into her roots, her ancestry and family background. I'm going to actually it the uh, there you go um you'll be able to discover the true Anne Boleyn who arrived at the English court in 1522 the woman who turned the heads of a courtier poet and king you'll be able to understand why this maid of honor was so very different to her contemporaries what made Anne Boleyn tick and how Anne was such a true renaissance woman and I believe that it's only by looking at Anne Boleyn's background and those her formative years, those that time spent at two Renaissance courts, that only by looking at that can we truly understand her, truly understand what grabbed Henry VIII's attention, what made her the woman she was, what made her the queen she was. Just remove that for a minute so you can see me again. 
And by the end of that week, and that week is going to have daily talks from Berlin experts and live Q&A sessions so you can get your burning questions answered. And these are the very best historians and authors, many of whom you'll recognize from the BBC series, um, The Berlin's A Scandalous Family. And by the end of that week, you will have met, I promise you, a very new Anne Boleyn, and you'll understand just why Henry VIII changed the course of English history to be with her and why they were such a powerful union. That is my aim. I feel very strongly that about how we really need to look at her early years um, to really understand her. And the event, as this says, is running from the 28th of February to the 6th of March 2022. Um, but there will also be a special bonus event in January as well. Full details can be found at my author website, not at the Amberlynn Files, but at claireridgeway.com. So if you go to claireridgeway.com on the home page, there is that very same uh, turquoise logo and you can click um, where it says um, find out more details and find out all about it. And tickets are on sale from right now. So I invite you to go and have a browse at that. Uh, so that is my news and I do hope that some of you will consider coming. There's all, all about it, the dates, uh, the speakers, I've got some wonderful speakers, um, all of the details are there for you. So you can go and have a browse at claireridgeway.com, nice and easy to remember. Just remember that my name has got a very weird spelling. Claire with an I and an E and Ridgeway without an E. Yes, I am strange. Thank you so very much. And I do apologise that I didn't get through lots and lots of questions. But um, I, yes, I, there are just so many that it's just impossible. It's hard to know where to start. So please don't feel ignored if I missed your question. Um, you know I'm always available on the Amber Limfiles Facebook page. I'm quite often on Twitter as well as sometimes on Instagram, but I tend to lurk more on Facebook and YouTube as well. Um, so you can always ask me questions there as well. But I will be back tomorrow, same time, same place, YouTube and Facebook, with day three of Amberlynn, the woman behind the myths. And tomorrow, I'm actually going to be talking about some more myths that surround Amberlynn. Some very popular ones, some not so popular ones, but some rather prevalent ones, ones that I get lost, um, asked a lot of questions about. So please do join me tomorrow. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking Tudor with you and talking Anne Boleyn with you. Oh, and Rebecca, I just have to show this. Rebecca has just said, preach away, Claire. Thank you. I will. I do quite like getting my soapbox when it comes to the Boleyn family. Take care, keep safe, and I will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs>